I want to ask you uh, a question this morning to be thinking about. And the question is, what are you looking forward to? What is, what is your hope set in this morning? And I know for me, as I was thinking about this question, um, <clears throat> it seemed like October 1st always kicked in when I was younger, this idea of hoping for presents. My, my birthday was in uh, November, and then Christmas was in December. And it, it's for whatever reason, I didn't really think about it until October 1st, and then it started to hit me. Like, people are going to ask me what I want for my birthday and for Christmas. So when I was younger, I would start researching. Um, and I know most of you who who are like under probably 30 might not understand this, but um, researching meant you went to grandma's house and you broke out the JCPenney's catalog and the Sears catalog Maybe if you were lucky, a Toys R Us catalog later on, but that, we didn't have those in the beginning. And you'd be flipping through the catalog, just looking at all of the different things that they were offering. And, and, and that's what I would begin to, to hope for. I would be anticipating those presents. So this morning, what, what is it you're anticipating in life? What are you looking forward to in your life? David is going to be talking about what we should all be hoping for most in these two songs. And when we get our focus too low, when we find ourselves um, focused on things below, we're in a grave danger of being depressed and discouraged and anxious, right? When I would get there on Christmas morning and open up that package and it turned out to be socks. <laughs> I would be so discouraged. That was not on the list I provided. But every year, that was the time I got new socks, right? And, and that's what happens is, is when our hope, when our longing, when our anticipation is on something too low, we'll find ourselves being discouraged and depressed and anxious. Not because we're hoping for too much, but because we're, hope, we're actually hoping for too little. And we're looking to things of this world to give us the things, or to, to, to bring us the joy and happiness that ultimately only God can bring to our lives. If it's in this world, it's fading away. And some of you put a lot of hope and stock in different things. I, I see so many people that put so much focus in their health. And that's not a bad thing, but it's, it, it, it tends to become almost like a God. That they exercise, they take good care of their body, they eat all the right things, they do all the right things. But despite everything you do, 100% of the time, you will die. That body that you're working so hard on will fail you. I, I remember one of my neighbors, he would run by our house every day. He was a, a dedicated runner, morning and afternoon. 
super healthy guy just fell over of a heart attack. And everybody was shocked because they all said, but he's so healthy. Yeah, but his body's fading away. Perhaps some of you are here this morning and you're waiting on some circumstances to change in your life. Maybe you're here and you're single and you're, you're hoping for a spouse and you're thinking, man, if, this, if that one circumstance changes, then, then everything is going to be better. Or maybe you're in school and, and, and you're waiting to graduate and you're thinking to yourself, man, it's going to be so much better. I remember being so young and foolish when I was in high school thinking, as soon as I get out, man, life is going to be so much better. Boy, that was wrong. That's when the bills came, right? You you have it so easy, but you're, you're sitting there thinking, if I can just get to this next place, there's always something we're hoping will change in our life, right? There's always another finish line that we're hoping to cross. There's another set of circumstances that we're hoping to see changed. Perhaps for some of you, you're trying to accumulate things, whether it's money or growing a big business or, or real estate. And at the end of the day, all that wealth will be given away to somebody who didn't earn it. You see how that can be discouraging and depressing? It's so easy for us to become discouraged, but the key thing that all those things have in common is that we're putting our hope in too little. And David wants us to put our hope in the right place this morning. He knows when we have our hope in the right place, then that changes our perspective on life. It it changes our view on our position in life. It changes our view of our bodies that are failing. It helps us to focus on what really matters in light of eternity. Look with me at Psalm 62 verses 1 and 2. David says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation. My fortress I shall not be greatly shaken. And then again in verses 5 and 8, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times. O people, pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Psalm 62 is in the Bible to speak to us this morning to say that that whatever it is we're looking for, we must be careful that our expectations are not too small. Our expectations, our, our hopes, what we're waiting for, what we're longing for should not be something other than the Lord himself. This series of Psalms were written by David when he was dealing with various kinds of difficulties in his life. If you look at the superscription of Psalm 63, notice it says that he was in the wilderness of Judah. 
I can imagine David was looking forward to the time when he was not being chased around by Saul. Looking forward to the day when Saul was no longer trying to kill him. But again, look at verse 1 of Psalm 62. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. This is really important for us to see this morning. David is reminding us in verse 1 that what he needs is not for his circumstances to change. It's not, get me out of the wilderness, Lord. Ultimately, he, he doesn't need to be delivered from Paul, or from Saul, excuse me. He doesn't need to be delivered from the wilderness. He doesn't need to be installed on the throne in Jerusalem. What he needs is God. That's what David says he needs the most. You see, David knows that his salvation is from the Lord alone. It doesn't come from his circumstances changing. It doesn't come from his fortunes changing. So again, I ask you this morning, when you think of your deliverance or salvation, what do you think of? Is your mind fixed on the new heavens and new earth? Or are your expectations smaller based on the things of this earth? Notice that in verse 2, David says that he alone is my rock. David is only looking to the Lord for his protection. The Lord is his rock, his, his fortress, his salvation. David is confident that he's not going to be overcome because he's confident in the Lord. It is from the Lord that David's salvation, David's protection comes. Now I want you to notice in verse 3 and 4 that David makes an, an application of these realities. David is saying that God is my salvation and I'm waiting on him. And then he kind of turns to address his enemies. Think about all the people that David has been describing over these past Psalms that have been trying to take advantage of him, have been trying to kill him. That's who David is talking to. He's turning now and talking to them. All those who've been rebelling against the Lord's plan of his being appointed king. And I'm sure it wouldn't be hard for us to imagine in our culture who are the people rebelling against God and his plan for humanity this morning. You see, God had a plan to put David on the throne and there was a lot of other people who didn't like that plan. They wanted to do things their way. Whether that's at the beginning of his life with Saul or the end of his life with Absalom, there were all these different people that were plotting against him because they wanted their kingdom, not God's kingdom. They wanted a kingdom, but they didn't want God to be a part of that kingdom. Just like so many today, they, they want a kingdom, but they have no desire for Jesus to be a part of that kingdom. They think they can bring justice themselves without God. David speaks to those people like Saul and Absalom. How long will you attack God's plan? This is why they are attacking David, because David is God's elect. 
David, again, is reminding us here that this isn't just about him. This is about what God is doing in the world. If they're going to establish their kingdom, though, they've got to get rid of God's kingdom. Hamilton says of these verses, and I am deeply indebted to Jim Hamilton and his work on the Psalms. Um, particularly for this message, but just this whole series of messages. He says of these verses, David is saying to his enemies, those who are opposed to the kingdom of God, you are all going to get it. You're all the seed of the serpent, and you're going to have your heads crushed. You will be shattered. This makes the next verses make more sense. They're going to be shattered like a leaning wall or a tottering fence. Have you ever tried to build a wall or a fence, but you didn't quite have enough material, so you started spacing things out a little farther than you should have, right? The fence starts to lose strength. There may be the appearance of a shield, but all it takes is one good wind or one good push, and it just falls over. And David says that's what it's like for these People's defense against the day of the Lord. These verses serve as a warning to David's enemies. He continues in the next verse. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. These people are acting like they are on board with God's plan. When they're face-to-face with David, they're like, oh yeah, we're with you, David. We're with you all the way. But behind his back, they're plotting against him. They're secretly cursing him inwardly. With these people in mind, David is saying, for God alone, my soul waits. I'm not putting any of my hope and faith in these people. I'm only putting my hope and faith in God. He repeats this in verse time or verse five, but this time it's different. Instead of David making it as an assertion, he, he's commanding himself in verse five. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. So David starts out with, with kind of a, an assertion, a truth in verse one. And, and now here we find David. He's commanding himself to remember this truth. Now, I don't know about you, but this is super encouraging to me. It's super encouraging that that God would record David speaking to himself the way he's speaking to himself in these verses for us to read. Have you ever found yourself in a place where you've met the Lord and and you've been in this just place of just like spiritual peace. Like you just, you just know you you just, just enjoy his presence. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden something happens in your life and you're just thrown into chaos. That is where David finds himself in this passage and, and he's trying to get himself back to that place of peace. So what is he doing? He's recalling these truths to himself. 
So he repeats verse 2 again in verse 6. He's, he's reminding himself that God only is his rock, his salvation, his fortress. And then in verse 7 and 8, David turns and addresses his allies. He, he wants everyone allied with him to know that on God rests his salvation. Think of all the times that David could have killed Saul, but instead he didn't. And he waited on the Lord to remove Saul. He, he was not going to lay his hand against God's king. It's okay sometimes to say, I, I, you know, I don't like the situation, but, but I'm not going to take matters into my own hands and try to fix it myself. I, I'm just going to roll up my sleeves and do what needs to be done. But instead, say, I'm going to wait on the Lord and leave it to him. That's what, that's what David is doing here. He's, he's reminding himself of the truths of God. He's reminding himself of where his salvation comes. He doesn't have to save himself. This one's free, but parents, there's an important lesson for us in this this morning. So many times we as well-meaning parents want to limit our kids' suffering by doing things for them. Instead, when we should leave them in the hands of God. Verse 8, he's reminding his allies, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. I hope if you're taking nothing from this sermon, I hope you take verse 8 to heart this morning. Pour out your heart before him. God is our refuge. Then in verse 9 and 10, what David does is evaluate the possibility of any kind of human solution to the problem. And basically what he's going to say is human solutions are altogether useless. To use a biblical word, they are vanity, right? Notice what David says in verse 9. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. David is saying, though they look like they are good, some even think they are significant and think they're powerful, it's all a delusion. It's all vanity. Nothing lasts. It's like a vapor. Here one minute, on the next. And then he continues here in verse 9, in the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath, over and gone before you know it. David then turns to apply this for us in verses 10, put no trust in extortion. And extortion is probably at the root of why so many people in our world seem to be able to do all of these horrible things and get away with it. Because they, they have something that they're extorting the officials with to allow them to get off without consequences for their actions. They, they extort those in power and they use their influence over the courts and the police and the government to get out of, out of trouble. Extortion, extortion is the epitome of injustice. 
This is why David says, put no trust in extortion. This is never the way of the righteous. Only the wicked. Set no hope, he says, in robbery. You can't steal your way into the kingdom of God. You can't take advantage of others to get yourself into the kingdom of God. That's not how it works. Never trust that wicked way of establishing a kingdom. It's going nowhere. Even if riches increase, he says, set not your heart on them. Boy, that's the temptation, isn't it, for all of us. As we get a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more, we tend to trust God a little bit less and a little bit less and a little bit less. Right? When you got that car that you're having to pray makes it to work without dying, you're clinging to Him. And then you get that new car and you forget to pray at all on your way to work. Right? That's our temptation as As riches increase, our trust in the Lord tends to decrease. We're not clinging to Him. Some of you, you, you're you're driving that car this morning that's barely making it. I want to tell you that may be God's grace in your life to draw you closer to Him. When you drive by that person in the brand new car, pity them. Pray for them. Praise God for where you are in your relationship to Him. Even if riches increase, set not your heart on them. In other words, even if people look wealthy, even if they look influential, don't put your trust in them. So many times I see this in the church, and it it, it always tends to end badly. But some movie star or some musician that's popular and well-known makes a profession of faith and the church is like yes this is going to be great for the the kingdom of god and they put all their hope and faith and stock in a person because they have wealth and influence and inevitably they fail david then applies these verses in verse 11 and 12 Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. The power belongs to God. And that you, O Lord, belong, or to you, that you, O Lord, belong steadfast love. For you will render a man according to his work. David ends by giving us three points of application. We see God's power, his steadfast love, and his justice. Our world seems to be unraveling at the seams more and more each day. We are more divided than I think we've probably ever been. And there are so many people that are using all of these issues that are dividing so many of us to try to gain power. They claim to want justice. And they claim to be loving They want a kingdom apart from God. They want to establish their own kingdoms. David is is reminding us that human 
kingdoms will never have a chance of being established for eternity. They all come to an end. Even this great nation that I am thankful to be born into and to live in is not going to last forever. I can't put my hope in it. If I do, I'm going to be depressed and discouraged. It is only God's kingdom that will bring about the realization of true power that comes from steadfast love and that will be a just society because God's justice is true. When I talk to people who are depressed, the thing that they seem to have in common is that their hopes are in the wrong place. Their hope rests on people treating them a certain way or or the realization of some desire that their heart wants for their life. For some people, it's, it's being respected or being influential. Whatever they're resting their identity on, and when they don't get it, when, when, when they don't get what their hopes are rested on, things don't go their way. It's like all of the joy of life just gets sucked out of them. They lose their identity and their satisfaction with life. David is reminding us in this psalm, don't put your hopes in these things. Put your hope in the Lord. What what can we take away from Psalm 62 this morning? Let me let me just focus on two things really quickly before moving to Psalm 63. First, we need to remind ourselves to hope in God. It is a truth that our hope is in God, but we need to remind ourselves of that regularly. The New Testament way of saying that is take every thought captive to Christ. When we find a thought entering into our mind, we should hold it up to the light of the gospel. And we should examine it and say, is, is this a way of, of thinking or speaking or acting that conforms to the way that Jesus spoke or acted to people? And if it's not, get rid of it. That's what it looks like to take a thought captive to the knowledge of Christ. Every time we do that, we are reminding ourselves of the hope we have in God. We're saying that the hope we have in God is greater than whatever that action is, whatever that thought is. So first, remind yourself to hope in God. Second, don't expect from humans what you can only get from God. That means whether it's an individual human or a collection of humans in the form of government, Don't expect them to give you what only God can give you. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I have some bad news for you. 
I know we like to say we have good news for you, but I, I have some bad news for you first. You, you're never going to get what you want. You're never going to be fully satisfied in this life. And apart from Christ, you're going to have to just learn to live with that. You're going to have to learn to be disappointed. If you don't want to know God, you'll never know the joy that he has for you at the deepest levels of your soul. It just won't work for you. I I promise you, you, you may find things that give you momentary pleasure. But you will constantly be chasing the next high. The good news, though, is that God wants you to have this kind of satisfaction this morning. And in fact, the reason that you are here this morning is that God loves you. And he doesn't want you to go another day without him in your life. I don't know why you think you're here, but I'm here to tell you that's why you're here. Because God loves you and wants to give you the deepest longings of your soul. And for those of you who are here who know Christ this morning, let this psalm be a reminder to never expect out of people what only God can give. With that in mind, it makes sense why Psalm 62 and and 63 are back to back. In Psalm 62, David is reminding us to wait on God. But then here in Psalm 63, David tells us why we should wait on the Lord. And then he gives us a, a method for learning how to wait on the Lord. David uses his own life to teach us this method. And first, let me say, Psalm 63 is probably one of the most humbling psalms in the entire book of Psalms. This psalm forces us to face the fact that many of us have not really experienced God the way David describes, if we're honest with ourselves. Again, the superscription reminds us that David is in the wilderness. This means that David is on the run. He's not in a comfortable place. He, he finds himself in danger. But notice in verse 1, O God, you are my God. David's God is not safety or comfort or an easy life or something else. Then he says, earnestly, I seek you. And this is one of those times where the English language, I think, lets us down. These words in the English kind of sound religious and sterile. David is saying he is yearning for God with, with every fiber of his being. God is what David is longing for from the deepest parts of his soul. And I'm sure each of us came into the building this morning and you're struggling with something in your life. And I don't know exactly what that may be, but I don't, I don't know what it is that you think you should have that you don't, that, that's bringing you down and discouraging you. But what I do know is that only God can truly satisfy your soul this morning. 
Only God should be the object of our deepest longings. This is, this is the language David is using here. There's, there's just a, a, an emotional depth to, to his longing for God. This isn't like earnestly, you know, I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to do what I need. No, he, he, he's, he's weeping. He, he's about to pass out as we're going to see in a minute. He, this is an emotional experience with God that David is having. And maybe some of you are, are here this morning and you're struggling because you're, you're longing for someone's presence that you no longer have. Maybe you lost someone dear to you. Maybe for some of you, you're struggling with a, a friendship that you no longer have. Or maybe it's a, a career, a job that you no longer have. Or a romantic relationship that you no longer have. It doesn't matter what it is that you used to have and you no longer have. We, we need to make sure that these longings are directed toward God. David says, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My, my soul thirsts for you. David relates a, a spiritual thirst to a physical experience when he says his flesh faints for God. David is saying his, his longing is so intense that he's fainting away in his longing for God. I think sometimes it's hard for us to put to words the spiritual. And I like how David is going to compare and contrast and give us a physical idea, a physical understanding that we can then relate spiritually and, and David is saying, is, is, is I'm thirsty and I'm longing and I'm desiring and, and I'm just, I'm famished and like to the point that I'm just passing out. Not, not fainting out of fear, but fainting out of just a, a, a desire and I just, I don't have it. I, I don't have what I'm longing for. And this morning, if there's anything that we're longing for more than God, the Bible calls that an idol. Meaning you are committing idolatry. God says that we should have no other God but Him. We must turn away from our idols and turn back to Him this morning. And David knows he needs God. But, but what has caused him to feel this way? Notice what he says in verse 2. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power. And glory. David is saying here in this verse that he is longing for God because he has experienced God in his power and glory. David had been in the, the temple where God's glory and power was on full display. And nothing, he says, can compare to that experience of presence with you. That's what leads him to long for it and to, to wait for God's presence. Then in verse 3, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Let's slow down for a minute and think about what David is saying here. Your steadfast love is better than life. Have you experienced God like this? 
David's experience of God's steadfast love is better than anything in this life. It's better than security. It's better than food. It's better than sex. You fill in the blank. It's better. God's steadfast love, David says, is better than life itself. Can you say that this morning? I told you this is a humbling psalm. Is there anything in this life that you think is better than God's steadfast love? If there is, that means you're an idolater. And it's my prayer that each of us experience God this way this morning. That that we believe that God's steadfast love is better than life. When we do, our natural reaction will be what he says in the rest of that verse. To praise, celebrate, and serve him. Some of you struggle with praising him because you struggle to believe that his love is greater than anything in life. I want to invite you to examine yourself this morning. What what does your life praise? What, What do you think is the best thing in the world? Is it God or something else? The only way to grow in this is to experience God more. It's not something you can read a book about or go to a Bible study about or even go to seminary and get. It's also something you can't fake. It comes from reminding ourselves of the hope we have in God. If our hope is in God and we're taking our thoughts captive more and more each day, we're going to be experiencing God more and more each day. The more we experience God's steadfast love, the more we will praise. We we shouldn't have to put on a class for how to praise. (laughs) That's a response. That's a natural reaction that, that comes when you really and truly believe that God's steadfast love is better than life. In verse 4 through 5, David says, So I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Notice back in verse 5, his his soul was thirsty and starving to the point of fainting, right? Right? Contrast that now with verse 5. His soul is satisfied with fat and, and rich food. To David, what it means to experience God spiritually is like when we are satisfied physically with a delicious meal with only the finest ingredients. This reminds me of a, a great quote from a French book called The Psychology of Taste. What a great title, right? And I can't, I'm, I would butcher the poor guy's name. He has like five French names and I'm not going to do that. But listen to this quote. Animals feed themselves. Men eat. But only wise men know the art of eating. I've met a lot of people over the years in restaurants for lunch. For the first couple of years of our church, the church office was restaurants. I had a regular booth 
at Ken's and people would come and schedule times. And that's where I would meet with them because we didn't have an office. And, and I got to know many restaurant owners and God has really given me a heart for restaurant owners because many of them are working on Sunday. They don't always get to come to church. And, and getting to know restaurant owners over the years and eating with them has opened up a whole new world of food to me. Most restaurant owners go into the business because they love food. And I remember telling one owner that, that I didn't really like sushi because every time I tried it, it just, it just didn't taste good, you know? And uh, he told me to meet him back the next week and to plan for a two-hour lunch. And, and this is not uncommon with this particular restaurant owner because he would make his specials and let me try them and, you know, just small plates of them. And, and we would try different things. But so I show up and that's what I'm thinking is going to happen. But instead, I get into a truck with him and we drive down to Jonesville, just outside of Gainesville. And he introduces me to this sushi chef. And, and, and he's also a restaurant owner and he was a friend of his and he asked me a couple of questions about, you know, what kind of foods do you like? What kind of foods do you not like taste-wise? And then we sat down. And guys, for the next hour and a half, we got boatloads. You know those sushi boats? You ever been to a nice sushi restaurant? If they don't have boats, it ain't a nice sushi restaurant. <laughs> Tip number one. But it's a boat about this big, a little wooden boat, and it's, it's just full of sushi. And he, he literally brought us boatloads of sushi to let me try all of the different things so that I could figure out what I liked. Now I love sushi because I know what to order. I know the things that I enjoy to eat. And, and, and the love of, of, of food that these restaurant owners have, it, it, it led me to, to start trying to figure out how can I promote them and how can I help them. And so I, I created this little account where I would do reviews and try to help restaurants, especially smaller ones out and, 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 and do that. And, and I would take pictures and I would write reviews of my experience. And some of my pastor friends joke that I have the spiritual gift of always knowing the best place to eat when we travel to other cities. But, but I did great at first. Like I was, I was going to places, trying places, writing reviews, but man, it, it didn't take long before I got burned out but probably not for the reason that you think. Clearly, I still like to eat. But the thing was, I began to try really good food. And once you've had really good food, all that other food, it just doesn't taste as good anymore. And it got harder and harder for me to find a place that I thought, wow, this is really good. Nothing would excite my taste buds to the point of me wanting to take a picture and, and write a review. Once I had the, the fat and rich food, as David would say, I lost my taste for everything else. It just, it just didn't seem to satisfy me anymore. It didn't seem praiseworthy anymore. This is what David is getting at here in verse 5. Our souls will be satisfied, much like our, our stomachs after eating the finest foods. My, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you 
with joyful lips. You see, me writing reviews and taking photographs was a natural response to indulging in a really great meal. Nobody asked me to do it. Nobody paid me to do it. It, it was a natural response to, wow, this is, this is amazing. And just as a side note, I still take pictures of great meals. I still write reviews when I think, man, this is, this is just really great. But, but again, I, I feel like that's just a natural thing we do, right? Gracie was doing a photo shoot yesterday and she went to five different places to find a particular kind of flower that for whatever reason, nobody had yesterday. And she went into the one florist that was open and was like, Hey, I need this. And the lady's like, well, I, I don't have anything because it's all being used for a wedding. But then she said, well, how much do you need? And, and Gracie said, I just need two small bunches for some, uh, for, for some photographs. And the lady picked off enough for her. And you know, the first thing Gracie said when she got home, I'm going to write them a great review, right? They, they could have said no, but they took the time, right? That, that's a natural response to, to when we get great service or we have a great meal. We, we just respond. Nobody has to ask us to do it. We just do it. And again, I still do this. I don't do it as often because, again, my my level of rich food has gone up over the years. Um, but as a warning, if you find yourself with me, you take me out to eat somewhere that's really good. I, I may be taking some pictures and, you know, you, you may even be in the picture. And when I post a review, you may become the poster board of a restaurant. It happens. I think. Do we do we have a picture, Donnie? Yeah. See, if you search Mildred's Big City Food, you're going to find Corey sampling all the cheesecakes with me to figure out which one was the best, right? Like, like we, we, we just can't help but, but talk about what we love. And David is saying the same thing here about God. When we experience him, we cannot help but praise him. Taste and see that the Lord is. Is good. Then in verse 6, he says, When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in my night, in the watches of the night, he's telling us what to do. This is telling us what to do. It's like reminiscing about a great meal. You ever ever eat a steak that was so good you could almost recall the taste months later? If not, I'll take you to a place to get a good steak. Or being inclusive, maybe some tofu, I guess. Um, But I've never had good tofu, so maybe you'll have to take me to a place to do that. Um, But but that's what what David is is doing here. He's not telling us, try harder to remember our experiences with God. No, instead, David says, this is a result of knowing God. When, When he lies down at night, he can't help but remember God. David is meditating on the person of God in verse 6. David can only do this because God has revealed himself to David. And God reveals himself in two ways. There's, there's general revelation and there's specific revelation. And what I mean by that is first, God has revealed himself to all of us through his creation. 
It, it points to the fact that there is a creator. But he has also given a specific revelation. And that's found in scripture. So if you want to experience God, look into your Bible, learn about who he is, and then look at the creation. Look at the world that he has made. Let the scriptures inform you about the general revelation of creation. Now look at verse 7. For you have been my help and And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. David is here reminding himself of all the times that God has saved him. And David, he's reminding himself of of the safety of being under God's wings. The the picture here is of a, a mother bird protecting her hens under its wings. And then in verse 8, it's beautiful. He says, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Again, this is where the the English lets us down just a little bit because the Hebrew word for clings here is the same word used in Genesis 2 when he says that a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. This melding, this, this welding of two people into one, that's What David is talking about here, it's not a clinging of like, let me hang on to his coattail so he drags me along through this life, right? It's it's a, a, a cleaving to God. David is using marriage imagery here in this verse. And this is incredibly intimate language that David is invoking here. There's an intimacy, David says, that comes from experiencing God. The only earthly relationship he can even come close to comparing it to is marriage. And and the intimacy that two people have that that have experienced each other so much that they are like one flesh. And David goes on in verse 9, But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. These are the people trying to create an alternate kingdom for themselves. And and if you're here this morning and you've not given your life to Jesus, David is now describing your future. David says you will go down to the depths of the earth. In other words, hell. Now look at verse 11. David switches and speaks in the third person here. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult for the mouths of liars will be stopped. David is speaking of the king that God promised through his throne. Jesus will be that king rejoicing in God. And all that swear by him will exalt him. Anybody who doesn't speak God's truth, anybody who doesn't sing God's praises, their mouths will be stopped forever. All of the enemies will be defeated. And King Jesus will be rejoicing with his people. I hope you take three things from Psalm 63 this morning. The first is that you need to know God. You need to know God. We know him specifically and generally, right? You remember that? Specifically through his word. Then go out into creation And love your neighbor so you can experience God's love for you. Go out and find people to love. 
Go out and find your neighbor and share the good news of the gospel. Number two, cleave yourself to God. Consider the marital analogy. Just as a man is meant to leave behind his parents and unite with his wife, a Christian, your primary attachment should be to God. This connection is symbolized through your baptism and and signifying your union with Christ. Similarly, when you partake in the Lord's Supper, you're reaffirming that bond with God. My suggestion is not to seek any kind of extraordinary experiences beyond what is typically found in our church community every week. The most profound way to connect with God is in the routine everyday life of the local church where the word of God is preached and the Lord is worshiped. I encourage you to take advantage of these opportunities available to you. And that brings me to my final point is as believers, we need to know God. We need to cleave to God and we need to disciple others to do the same. You may be asking, how do I get to be a discipler? See point one and two. Know God. Cleave to God. And love people. Know God and love people. When I I think back over my Christian life, and I would challenge you to think back over your Christian life this week, the, the people that made the biggest impact on my life didn't just walk me through a book. They walked with God with me. They opened up their homes. They opened up their hearts to me. And they poured into my life. Disciplers go and make disciples who make more disciples. The discipleship program at Church on the Way is really simple. Know God and love people. Know God and love people. Then keep your eyes open for opportunities to serve. Keep your ears open for opportunities to serve. Pay attention to those who are suffering around you. Pay attention when you're in small group and you see somebody that could use a little extra help. Then know God and love people. And give yourself away. You don't need a fancy strategy. You don't need the right curriculum. In fact, many people often substitute those things for the real thing. We need people who know God and love people. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, we would love for you to join us so that you too can experience the soul-satisfying love of God's steadfast love in your life. And if you're here this morning and you are a believer, how are you doing with knowing God and loving people and discipling others in his